to The Word is Resistance, a podcast exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, and thriving in the context of empire, violence, and repression. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Blythe Barnum, and this is a project of Surge Faith. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that to be Christian in this time and in this country requires listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. A bit about me, I'm a queer white femme who was raised working class in Ohio and now lives on the occupied Ohlone land known as Oakland, California. I'm a writer, preacher, community organizer, and minister. I learned what I know about the sacred from harm reductionists, survivors, sex workers, and working class grandmas, my community. You can learn more about me at feminary.com. This week's scripture is Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. I always like to just read the verses so we know more clearly what we're dealing with. So here we go. Then the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, Do you understand what you're reading? He replied, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. particularity of place. Philip is instructed to travel the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Take that in. These are names we know because these places are real. 
but sometimes we forget that. We make them just stories. However, in the last several weeks, hundreds of people have been wounded in Gaza, and at least 37 have been killed as they nonviolently protested their occupation. Both Jerusalem and Gaza exist under occupation today, and we should not gain wisdom from the stories of their homeland without also responding to the crisis they face today, a crisis largely fueled by the U.S. white supremacy and fundamentalist Christian legislation. These forces, they are deadly to the people of Gaza, to all of us. When I was 20, my ex-boyfriend died of an accidental overdose. In the month following his death, I was filled with a sort of grief and rage that rendered me silent. I didn't speak to anyone. I felt his death like a failure. And for years, I convinced myself that I could have saved his life if I had just married him when he'd asked, instead of going back to school. Grief is strange, and it has seasons. At least mine has. For years, I stayed in blame, then acceptance, then rage again, then understanding, and back to rage. At first, I was angry at myself. Then I was angry at him, and then the world. Grief changes, and your relationship to the dead changes with it. The night he overdosed, someone was with him. They were in a hotel room the next town over, and when he began to overdose, they left him. Everybody seemed to know who it was, but nobody was talking. In my white working class community, there was an unspoken understanding that you didn't rat people out, particularly if jail was on the other side of the truth. I also honored that code, even though I was nearly certain who it was. Instead, I silently hated her and refused to speak to her ever again, even though she was my friend. I'd flown home the day before his funeral and met some friends at his old apartment. There was a box of things they'd left for me to go through. It was all the wigs and skirts and corsets that he'd kept hidden in the bottom drawer of his dresser. They'd pack them up before his parents could find them and asked if I wanted to take them. I knew that he was queer, though we never spoke about it. But many a night he crawled into my bed with me just after having sex with a mutual friend of ours in secret. He had long struggled with gender and sexuality. In fact, on our first date in high school, I came over early and found him in his room wearing a skirt. I just chalked it up to him being artistic and eccentric. He had long blonde hair and wore rings on every finger with occasional nail polish too. But that wasn't actually uncommon for boys in my life. For some reason, the hypermasculinity of heavy metal culture allowed for more femininity in appearance sometimes, which of course now I wanna think a lot more about. After we'd been dating a while, he told me that we couldn't have sex. I was surprised and asked him why. And he told me that he wanted to get right with God and that the next person he slept with was going to be his wife. His parents were fundamentalist Christians, and he struggled with his love of God and his fear of God. More than that, he struggled with his own worthiness. He was queer, 
and gender non-conforming and a drug user, and he truly believed that God would not love him until he stopped sinning. So he tried. In fits and starts, he tried to be sober or celibate or more masculine, but he always failed. So he thought himself a failure. But really, he failed because he could never address the root issues. He couldn't name the homophobia and transphobia he was wrestling with because his community didn't have the words for it. We didn't have the words for it. So instead, he measured himself against the roots of what raised him, the impossible standards of fundamentalist Christianity and white supremacy. They're related, you know. Both value purity, individualism, isolation, and perfection. Both call for rigid boundaries and threaten extreme consequence if they're crossed. They serve as a reinforcement for one another. That white supremacy that killed people in Gaza and the Christianity that killed my ex, they are cousins to one another. Years after my ex's death, I found myself working at the Harm Reduction Coalition, which was somewhat ironic since I'd spent years of my life judging and fearing people who use drugs. I'd lost many more friends to overdose and suicide, and I was tired of being around people who were selfish and who treated their lives so carelessly. In fact, I moved clear across the country to escape them. Harm reduction is described as a set of practical strategies aimed at reducing negative consequences associated with drug use. For example, using clean syringes reduces the risk of contracting hepatitis C and HIV, the same way wearing a condom reduces the risk of pregnancy and the transmission of STIs, the same way that wearing a seatbelt reduces the risk of injury while driving a car. Harm reduction uses a spectrum of strategies, from safer use to managed use to abstinence, in order to meet drug users where they're at. It's a movement for social justice built on re the respect for rights of people who use drugs, including the right to live and live well. Simply put, it's meeting people where they're at and supporting them in keeping themselves as safe, healthy, and connected as possible without the condition of their sobriety. And to be honest, it was really challenging for me because I didn't want to meet people where they were at because it wasn't where I wanted them to be. I wanted them to be sober. Working in harm reduction is hard and really vulnerable because it calls me on my shit. It pokes holes in my good intentions and asks me to look at what's underneath. I told myself I just wanted the people I love to be happy and that's why I wanted them to be sober. And of course that was true. I want them to be happy but also, people who were actively using felt dangerous to me. I was afraid of them. I was certain that they would hurt me or hurt themselves, which in turn would hurt me. I wanted to protect myself from all that. And I was so angry at them because I was judging them for their lack of control. They weren't holding up their part of the bargain. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to work harder to be pure. They were supposed to keep their struggles to themselves and not make them my problem. They were supposed to take care of their own messes the way I had to. They were supposed to hide their imperfection
the way white supremacy had taught us to. Our response to drug users is cloaked in white supremacy. The more you meet the standards of whiteness, the more drugs you're allowed to use, and the more support you're given. It's why there was no national outcry or mourning during the crack epidemic of the 80s. It's why drug legislation has always targeted immigrants and communities of color. It's why it doesn't matter that people of color, the white working class, queer and trans people, and folks living on the streets have been dying of overdoses for decades. Because under white supremacy, they, we, are expendable. It's taken the opiate overdose crisis reaching the towers of white supremacy to get any response at all. Working in harm reduction was a reality check. It asked me to honestly reflect on what I believed about the people I loved. It asked me to look beyond my heart and see what was systemic. And what I saw was a community struggling and in pain. What I saw was people who were doing their best but had been discarded by their communities because they did not live up to the standards of white supremacy. My ex wasn't careless with his life. He was attempting to survive it. He wasn't trying to die. He was trying to live with the pain. He was trying to cope with the pain of being closeted, the pain of never being able to meet the expectations of his parents' theology the pain of never being able to adhere to the form of whiteness that the world demanded of him. Opiates are painkillers. They decrease pain. And if we decrease the pain of white supremacy, we'll end the opiate crisis. And the person who left him that night wasn't selfish. In fact, I learned later that she had called the ambulance right after leaving. She'd done all she thought she could. But she couldn't go to prison. She had a son that was counting on her, and there were no good Samaritan laws at the time to protect her. Had they had access to naloxone, a life-saving drug that can reverse an opiate overdose, or had she been able to stay with him and call the ambulance without the threat of prison, perhaps they would both be here today. Instead, they're both gone, both dying from accidental overdoses. Hers, nearly 10 years after his. Their deaths are not a result of their failures. Their deaths are the result of a system that deemed them disposable. Harm reduction taught me that. I remember meeting someone from a local drug users union a few years ago. I'll call her Jay. She spoke about herself and other people who use drugs with such love and authority. Listening to her felt like being invited into a new reality, a new way of living, one with so much less shame. She was clear about her worth and the worthiness of her community. And she reminds me of the person in today's scripture. So often we refer to that person only as the eunuch. We get fixed on that. Also, we're not given a name. But I think we fixate on their otherness so much so that I think we miss their power. And in missing their power, we also miss the point. Instead, we focus on Philip's willingness to baptize them. We make the story about the inclusivity of the church, when really Philip had little to do with what happened.
Philip didn't introduce this person to the prophets. They were already reading Isaiah. When the Spirit said to go over to the chariot and join it, we've assumed that Philip was supposed to go over and share the good news, that Philip was supposed to go and teach this person something. But I don't think that's the case. Instead, I think the Spirit told Philip to join them because God knows that we need each other in order to grow in our understanding, that the gospel isn't individualistic, we're meant to struggle with it together. We're meant to learn its meaning in community. This is not the story of a generous and inclusive church. Instead, it's the story of a person who trusted their worth so fully that it helped to shape a church. This person wasn't waiting for Philip to mark them as sacred. They already knew they were. So much so that they commanded the chariot to stop and initiated their own baptism was not bestowed upon them by Philip. They orchestrated it. What is to prevent me from being baptized? That isn't the question of someone asking permission. That's the question of someone who already knows the answer. The question isn't passive. It's a challenge. It's an assertion of value. It's sass. It's like Sojourner Truth when she asks, ain't I a woman? What is to prevent me from being baptized? Nothing, because I am already sacred. I am already deserving. There is no barrier between me and God. I am already worthy. Like Jay, the person in this scripture claimed their right to worthiness, their right to the sacred. After all dignity and divinity, they're related. In harm reduction, the organizing of drug users and peers does not wait for the rest of us. They are not waiting for others to deem them worthy. Instead, they assert their right to life, wellness, freedom, and dignity. Instead, they invite us into a world that is more inclusive and freer of judgment. Access to clean syringes, the distribution of naloxone, supervised consumption sites, test strips that detect the presence of fentanyl, these are all life-saving responses to drug use that are rooted in the skill and wisdom of drug users. Drug users do not need us to invite them to salvation. Instead, they need us to go and join them. In this moment where so many are facing the impact of rising overdose deaths, I think we Christians, we, treat, we church people, would do well to see the ways that the communities we other are leading the way. And like Philip, we would do well to follow their lead. And in doing so, we refute the lie of white supremacist Christianity that would have us to believe that our salvation is dependent on purity, isolation, and perfection. Instead, we come to live out the promise of the gospel, and we remember that salvation is found only when we come together. I encourage you to learn more about the racialized history of the war on drugs 
and familiarize yourself with the principles of harm reduction. Check out the Harm Reduction Coalition and Drug Policy Alliance for more ways to get involved. At the end of this week's transcript, I will also include links to those sites as well as information about places to donate to support the protesters in Gaza during this urgent time. Thank you for joining us today. Let us know what you think about today's episode by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. As always, you can find a transcript of this week's podcast, including links to resources and copyright information, on our website. The music you heard is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for allowing us to use this song for the podcast. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. To find our podcast again, simply search for it, The Word is Resistance, on SoundCloud or iTunes. Be sure to tune in next week when we'll have a brand new episode. Until then, may you go forward in the peace and power of a God who loves us for all that we are and in spite of nothing, the same God that calls us to the work of justice. Amen.